Hello, welcome back to uh, Everyday Anarchism. I'm your host, Graham Colbert, and my guest today is is Brad DeLong. So um, I have and had James. Here I am. Yes. In the most un-anarchic un world possible, that of California, and something that depends on the most immensely complex functioning and hierarchically organized division of labor ever seen, which is what we need to get even our water. <laughs> let alone our food, let alone our protection from fire, let alone all the fun organic or electronic toys that are produced by globally spanning value chains. Ooh, yeah, okay. Well, Brad, Brad's Brad's ready for this conversation then, clearly. Uh, have you read Kim Stanley Robinson's uh, Three Californias trilogy? Long ago, long ago. Yes, Kim so, Stanley Robinson is so wonderful. And my memory of it has been largely blocked out by my memory of his Mars trilogy. Yeah, I think so. So Stan's going to come back. Uh, I had Stan on the show a couple months ago, and he's going to come back. And we're oh, gonna you talk. lucky person! You lucky person! You. Oh, it was such a pleasure. It and yeah, it and then I total blast. And then I was like, "Hey, would you be willing to come back and discuss three Californias?" And he was like, "Sure." Yeah. So yeah. Um, well, his his book, Three Californias, or his trilogy, the second one is is very much it's uh i think it's called the gold coast it's very much a description mm -hmm. of the world that that we are living in that that you are living in 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 california and then in pacific edge which is the third one is a right. an, an, an an anarchist version or an anarchist adjacent version of right. uh of California. So I'm not going to disagree that you're living in a, something of a paradise and it's not an anarchist paradise, but I'm also with Stan that we could have a better a better California if it was more anarchist. Oh, we could have a much, much better California. <laughs> you know, you truly have a California that is remarkably short of its potential in so, so many ways. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, well, the other thing that Stan likes to talk about is the way that, you know, for all of its flaws, the the dream of California as a utopia, as a better place has been mm -hmm. incredibly powerful, although that dream can, yeah. again, be twisted in ways that are mm -hmm. that are mm -hmm. that are yeah. techno utopian. Um, yeah. So I was uh, we were talking before and I told you I liked the book and, and you Yay! The book is Slouching Towards Utopia, an Economic History of the Long 20th Century. My attempt to put in my bid for shaping the mind of the present and the future about where we are and how we got here. And rather than all my, all my other economic historian colleagues start in 1700 with the Industrial Revolution, but I start in 1870 when things really, really take off. Okay, well, say 1870 to 2010 or 2020 is one single integrated story that we have to grab. And, you know, it's this is fascinating already. So this episode is going to air a week after an episode um, with Ruth Kenna on on William Morris. Oh, wonderful. Oh, wonderful. Yes. So um, <laughs> which is to say, you know, if if in some sense, I don't know how much you would say Edward Bellamy uh is is a prominent figure but i would say bellaby's yeah. vision is is an mm -hmm. there's a there's a trash truck coming by a recycling truck i don't know if it's audible so mm -hmm. bellaby's vision is this technocratic utopian 
vision. And I would say reading your book and knowing what I know about your work, um, that's more mm-hmm. or less the utopia that you think we are or should be slouching towards. The other very famous techno-utopian future is Star Trek. Um, and, yes. and in that case, yes. both of those feel right to me. So let's start there. Does that yeah. does that sound right? This, it's a world in which technology is harnessed in a kind of industrial way for mm-hmm. everyone. Yes. You know, that basically up until 1870, we were under the harrow of Malthus. And under those circumstances, the best utopia you can expect for, given how poor the world is, is William Morris's utopia um, of relative equality, especially of respect and of pride in craftsmanship. That people in Morris's utopia are not rich. They cannot be rich. You know, there are no flying cars. There are no Mars expeditions. Um, but instead, people eat simple but lovingly and carefully prepared fare and wear beautiful things that are beautiful because of the mindfulness and attention that people have devoted to them. And they have a great deal of solidarity. And in that respect, it's many, many ways an inversion of the actual societies of and before 1870, you know, which, because they're societies of relative poverty for largely Malthusian regions, um, if you are to have enough and if your family is to have enough, the way you do it is you have to become part of the exploitation and domination force and fraud apparatus um, that takes from the workers and gives to an upper class of clerics and thugs with spears and managers, and then somehow find some way to justify that to themselves and to others and to maintain it. And Morris is writing against that, saying we do not have to be there. And lo and behold, I want to say today, with all our technologies, we really, really, really you know, do not have to be there. And yet somehow, even though we have now so much wealth potentially available, given our enormous technological competence, there is absolutely no reason why everybody can't have enough. We still have a lot of what looked like, you know, force and fraud, exploitation and domination, you know, um, ideological and ideological state apparatuses and forced state apparatuses running around and making us very unhappy. Okay, so, so far we completely agree, Um, which is, which is one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on this show, Brad, was that I thought we, um, I thought we agreed on a lot of things and there are plenty of whatever you want to say, mainstream center-left economists who I cannot imagine um, agreeing on as much as I do with you, having followed your career for a while. Mm-hmm. So the other thing is you asked me what I think the, the big thing you got wrong in slouching towards utopia. I have I have two. And the first one is this is the idea that society prior to 1870 was poor. Now, I will freely admit I'm not an expert. My expertise comes in around 1870 as well. But um, it does seem that obviously the new Graeber-Wingrove book, which was written from an explicitly anarchist end, but uh, this work by a a UPenn archaeologist, I think her name is Kim Bowes, um, there's all this questioning 
from the archaeologists and the anthropologists as to whether the societies of the past actually were as poor as they think we are. And I, I just listened to a podcast with Kim Bose recently where she described studying Roman peasants and finding just enormous wealth and just being blown away. They were shipping wine to one mm -hmm. another and they had glass in their pigsties and just the, in other words, the world resembled Morris's world in Not which more Morris's world. as opposed to a like world in which everyone was hungry and just barely eating. She said, oh, they ate, they seemed to live on olive oil, wine and meat. And this is the quote, yeah. poor of the Roman empire. So if if the world was really that good back then, or the poor of Italy, Central Italy, and the Roman Empire. Yes, per, yes, precisely. Although I can't remember. I think she is working in in Central Italy, which is not to yeah. say that I know what things were like for most people in most places throughout the world. It's just that I'm suspicious of claims that people were more or less living hand to mouth in other words perhaps news from nowhere the skeletons, you know the skeletons we dig up are the adult males are on average five foot three yeah for everyone except the upper classes or the lucky right the people who live around san francisco bay and eat on shellfish right their skeletons look to be five foot seven or so for male adults um, the Comanche and the Sioux, after the horse escapes, um, look to be five foot eight or five foot nine. Um, but you know, an adult male height of five foot three, um, were I to have fed my children a diet that would have made the boy five foot three at adulthood, you know, Alameda County Child and Protective Services would have come and would have taken my child, you know, away. Um, and there's also, you know, I mean, certainly since people, the cultures of speaking Indo-European language came boiling out, right, um, 5,000 or so years ago, um, it really has been the case that over an awful lot of places, and maybe before, you know, your social power, if you're a woman, depends on having surviving sons. Yeah. And yet we look at the fact that population growth rates were so very, very slow back before 1500. And you've got to think that at least a third of women wind up without surviving sons. And in such a world right, in which one third of the women who survive to old age do not have sons to advocate for them. Um, and given the way societies work would dearly, dearly have loved to that. And in such a world in which people are only able to feed their children diets that make the adult males five foot three, um, it's hard not to think that most people spent most of their time thinking about how they were hungry. Um, or cold or wet and trying to figure out how to get marginal improvements in that. And that's kind of inconsistent with the um, happy, you know, adjusted to means, uh, 
happy with ends adjusted to the available means pre-industrial societies that we all would wish um, we had. Sure. I mean, yeah, we... we, no, we no, you can do it. You do, you do not have to be rich in material goods to be rich. Um, and, you know, Ursula Le Guin's The Dispossessed. You know, there's a America and Third World Shadow Analog Hainish um, society on the planet, which is supposed to be like late 20th century America and Vietnam. And then there's the anarchist collective on the moon, um, which is quite poor in material things. They are very much under the hammer of necessity, um, but they believe they have enough you know, because they do have enough that they're not hungry, they're not cold, they're not wet, and because they have this powerful anti-propertarian ideology, um, they actually do not want um, to have things. Right? And so, you know, they behave like Pacific Northwest, late 20th century intellectual, um, <laughs> laughing and drinking wine and having a great deal of fun all the time while they buckle down and work to keep themselves, their heads above water on this barely habitable moon. And to the extent that there is a snake in the garden, it's rising bureaucracy and ideolo enforced ideological conformity. Um, and you know, it's poor, um, but it's not a society of poverty. It would be nice if most pre-industrial societies were societies that were poor but not in poverty. Um, but, you know, I look at infant mortality, I look at the size of the skull skeletons we um, build up, I look at the trend to move away from relative solidarity to either big men, and it's almost always men in the village, and then into increasing hierarchical structures precisely because there isn't enough. Um, and I can't be that optimistic. Um, that I see William Morris as a dream rather than as a reflection of any, of any reality except in isolated times and places. And of course, you find a fairly large group of people who do seem to conform somewhat to that reality. You know, Socrates and his friends with their olive oil and wine discussing things. And it seems to rest on an awful lot of people who are invisible to the male land and male citizens um, of classical Athens. Yeah, so at this point I can mention um, another figure who is uh, who is more amenable um, to, to your vision, I would say, which is Oscar Wilde. He makes this point precisely in The Soul of Man Under Socialism that the Morris-style world, I mean, Morris believes, and I certainly, I, I want to believe, um, if that 90s statement has any valence yeah. left, I want to believe um, that it, it's achievable without you know, the sort of industrial mechanization that that does start showing up in the late 19th century. Wilde thinks you do need it, and you precisely need it because a world like Socrates' world depended on slavery. Morris's world cannot actually exist in which everyone is a worker, and you need a bureaucracy of production that is not yeah. tied into the kind of hierarchies, Brad, that you're describing as as ruining these utopias it's there's no big men is, yeah. go ahead 
which is why in Joe Walton's Thessaly trilogy, when Athena decides to set up Plato's Republic on another world and to bring people from all times and places to there to see how it works out, she has to incorporate robots. Robots, which are which, which is a, which is just a check word for slaves, um, meaning. Well, well, I mean that's the, the this is yeah, the thing at, the, at a deeper level. At a deeper level, some of the robots attain consciousness, and then things become interesting as well. Right, but that's the of of course, but the the point recommend. the point is when you say we you know we need robots to fix all of this. What what people I think are missing is that robot does does mean people who are forced to do this work, and, and the and, dream yeah. is that you could have machines who could do this work, and then the fear yeah. is. And this is for another day and age, I think. The fear is that if you make machines that can do this work, they will become people, and then you have reinvented slavery. That's that's what someone like Chopak would say in response to Wilde's vision. If you make machine slaves, you're just going to get people who are not yeah. humans, who are also enslaved. Yes. You know, as Paul Krugman likes to say, that to say that we will ultimately have artificial general intelligence as our servitors is not to build a utopia, but instead a society right for the robot operator. Yes. Um, and at, at yeah. some point, um, go ahead. You know, but the broader point, you know, um, it was indeed Aristotle, right, for whom knowledge of market conditions and production technologies was the fourth and least important of the branches of economics, right? And the third most important was how to boss your wife. The second was how to raise your children to be properly respectful. And the first was how to boss your slaves. And your know, Aristotle says that's how it had to be if you wanted to have um, a society in which people could do philosophy, and it would always be until we had liars that could play without someone picking the strings, until we had um, looms where the shuttle would throw itself without a human hand, until we had the robot blacksmiths created by Daedalus to assist him with his work, or, and this is the most bizarre thing of all, the automatic catering carts of Hephaestus, which he built for Olympus so that the catering carts could come by their own accord into the banquet of the god. We can, you know, I mentioned, well, we can also say the Star Trek replicator. It's the same, it's the same idea. It's the same idea that we have, in a, that we have marvelous and wonderful technologies for manipulating nature and not quite as marvelous, but still wonderful technologies for organizing ourselves very complicated division of labor. And, you know, this is the only thing that allows us to maintain 8 billion people on this planet, uh, given the small effective farm sizes that requires. And the, uh, okay, well, this this brings me to my other, uh, the, the I sort of um, had objections to the book at the beginning and, and the end. Um, Good, okay. And my my objection uh, to the book at the at the end, or maybe this isn't even an objection, but it's a it's something that I want to at least yeah. discuss with you is I detect throughout the text, including in your conclusion, when you say you know who's who's responsible for the the neoliberal turn and the continuation of the neoliberal turn, and you say we don't quite know, but perhaps multinational corporations are the 
are the villain here. You you speculate that they are the villain. You don't quite go out and mm-hmm. and say that they are. Is that am am I reading that part of the it book is, correctly? And I would say that the right that the remarkable persistence. Um, um, so the neoliberal order, in spite of the fact that it, you know, it did not restore productivity growth to the rate that we saw back in the golden age for economic growth, at least in the global north after World War II. Um, it did not create or restore a society with a stable moral core and the um, established moral order that the neoliberals like Reagan and Thatcher wanted to see. Um, it didn't even redistribute wealth so the deserving got their share and the undeserving got their just desserts. It basically failed at everything except to make wealth even more unequal and unfair. And yet the thing manages to hold itself together. And the political movements that appear to be having lots of traction are things that look considerably worse to me than even the right neoliberalism of Reagan and Thatcher in their heyday. Yes, I I would, I would, I would completely agree with that. And now the question is, is not the entire, you know, field of macroeconomics, the, the handmaiden of these multinational corporations insofar. So one of the things that you say in the book, you know, quoting someone who's quoting someone is that economists, uh, you know, secret weapon is that they can count things. Um, but I'm very, very skeptical of the kind of counting that economists do. Um, the New York Times just ran a, a great story about all of the white collar workers who are now having their productivity assessed by um, yes, yes, by you know machines, and tracking have you machines. Read, have you read? Have you read my colleague Caitlin Rosenthal's book about scientific management in the U.S. in the age of slavery? Um, I have. Uh, I am familiar with the book. I haven't read yes. it, but okay. so, so, read scientific it. management absolutely wonderful. My yes. my dissertation uh, was in the late nineteenth, oh. early twentieth century, progressive era, and scientific management yes. was yes. is something I'm very familiar with. The yes. the, yes. the problem yes. with scientific management, I would say, Brad, um, is is that they will always end up measuring the wrong things. And when you talk to the people who are currently preventing their employees from having bathroom breaks, although you and I both know that a worker who pees is in fact a better worker, they will always say, well, we've just got to work the kinks out and we will always make sure that we are measuring better and better and better until we reach utopia. And I personally think that the, you know, the counted life will always be worse. I guess that, that that that's a place where if you want to put it, you can call it my belief or my my ideology. The counted life will always be worse, but the counted life may well extract more surplus for the force and fraud mechanism from the people actually doing the work. Right. And that's the and that's the only advantage it truly has. I don't believe it's actually more productive. And we can talk about this. 
more. Sorry, go ahead. It's unlikely to be. It's unlikely to be more productive, certainly. Um, but then okay, is it the problem? This is different, yeah, but this is sort of separate from the macroeconomic conditions, um, which or macroeconomic problems, for which the big question is we've now had industrial market economies for, I would really say, for 200 years since the British Canal Panic of 1825. We've kind of seen what's coming down the pike. And we've had commercial and mercantile economies subject to you know, financial crises and various other kinds of disruptions of the sphere of circulation. You know, depending on your, how you're counting since the early 1700s in the South Sea bubble or back to the Roman Empire, to the first days of the Roman Empire, um, that to coordinate the global market division of labor we have in such a way that it does not seize up in an epileptic fit of one sort or another should not be beyond the competence of those responsible for kind of guiding the system. And yet, lo and behold, we find that it is beyond the competence of us to kind of keep things so that everyone has a job and things are relatively predictable. And people who want need jobs find it relatively easy to find one. And people who need things find it relatively easily, to, at least to procure them, paying the prices that they expect um, or that are customary. And, you know, the world since 2007 demonstrates that's definitely not so, that we did avoid another Great Depression, but that's about the best you can say about our collective political ability to manage the economy for full employment, equitable growth, and, you know, no big surprises as the aggregate as to how high the prices you have to pay for things. And this is where I put my anarchist hat on and say, I am against employment. Jobs are a relatively recent thing. They're only about 200 yeah. years old. Neither you nor I, Brad, have a job um, in in the sense of uh, accountability to um, someone above us who, who has a day-to-day mm -hmm. -day numerical account of our work. The, the registrar, you know, sends me, yes. sends me when my classes are. And, mm -hmm. you know, there's relatively little oversight. There's certainly no question of where I am right now. And I would be much less productive if I had a job. Mm -hmm. In fact, for the first time in my life, I had a job. I didn't realize it. I took a teaching position that I did not realize was going to be run according to you know, numerical oh, evaluation, yeah. and I left it, yeah. and I was a much worse mm -hmm. teacher there. And so mm -hmm. this is the technocratic thing. This is where Bellamy comes in versus Morris. Bellamy's idea is that everyone um, needs a job. Morris's idea is that everyone needs to do productive work. My theory mm -hmm. is that macroeconomics measures jobs much better than it measures productive work, which is why you can have uh, GDP can go up and all of that money mm -hmm. can be going to uh, corporate lawyers and hedge fund managers who are not doing productive work 
But when you ask the macroeconomists, mm -hmm. they will say, oh, look, the productivity went up in the United States. And so this thing they're describing as productivity does not seem to me to have something to do with the actual act of producing the things we need to have a good life, which is why I've become mm -hmm. more Morrisian and less Bellamian over the past five years. That right now our financial sector is sucking down 9% of national income and paying it out to itself and its workers. While in the 1950s, our financial sector sucked down 3%. Um, and um, I do not see any significant gains you know, in terms of our collective social investments being better directed toward useful purposes than we saw in the 1950s. I do not see any addition, great additional provision of insurance successfully against the slings and arrows of fortune. Um, I do not see kind of anything um, that we get out of our spending 9% rather than 3% of our national income on the finance sector you know, other than the ATM card means we don't have to wait at the bank for 30 minutes to get money on Saturday <laughs> mornings, as my parents used to do. And, you know, paying for things through the Apple Watch is a little bit easier than getting out the wallet. But, you know, not that much. Um, you know, that an awful lot of what the market says it's willing to pay for services you kind of back and scratch your head and saying, what are these services supposed to do? You know, and they aren't doing. So this is where the that everyone, the idea that everyone needs, say, to do useful work, which probably in a world in which we have a complicated division of labor and find it productive means that everyone has to have an occupation um, rather than saying everyone needs a job. Um, that would be a good thing to work towards. Um, but the next question is obviously, why um, have we not managed to get there? You know, why do people have jobs rather than occupations? Um, and then the next question beyond that is, if we do have a world in which we have jobs, why is it there sometimes that jobs are incredibly scarce? So, I mean, I have some theories, but yeah, I'm, I'm happy to hear yours. No, no, no. Um, you know, there aren't really. Um, you know, occasionally I go down to Los Angeles and peer over the shoulder of my first cousin, Phil, you know, who works in Hollywood, you know, and Hollywood is a place where people essentially no longer have jobs. They have occupations and, you know, they come together for individual tasks and projects. Yeah. That some people are on the staff of Sony Pictures and others are not. But, you know, you float around assembling a pickup crew of people to do a particular task, you know, and some people have the responsibility of managing to organize, trying to organize things and of trying to figure out, you know, how to do this kind of pickup assembly of getting people with occupations useful work that they need so that it fits into the overall production problem. Um, I'll give you it a... seems to work, and it seems to work as well as the old studio system. I'll give you an even bigger example, Brad, which is yeah. 
basic science and also your your beloved industrial research laboratories are filled yeah. with people who have occupations and right, right. of this sort. Oh, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, in other words, one every, view, go ahead. One view is that most jobs um, are simply things that ought to be done by robots that we haven't invented yet. Right, that are now slightly beyond our competence or majorly beyond our um, Yes. That, you know, that you go back to the, say, to the Odyssey, and, you know, the Odyssey. Um, if a woman appears in the Odyssey, well, sometimes the women will be at parties or will be serving things. You know, once there's a princess with her friends is out supposed to be doing the laundry, although actually they're playing on the beach. But everyone else you meet, um, she's at her loom, right? Helen of Troy is spending her time weaving clothes for her husband Menelaus of Sparta. Um, you know, Circe and Calypso, you know, enchantresses who can kill, turn people into pigs and enspell Odysseus so that although he bitterly weeps tears, he cannot tear himself away from her, are at their looms, are weaving things. You know, and that's because if you want to wear clothes back before automatic textile machinery, um, someone has to have the job of actually taking the fabrics and piecing them together into an area spinning interlocking patchwork. You know, and that's a huge amount of time, overwhelmingly female labor time since before the invention of agriculture. And so there are an awful lot of jobs, right? The job of wheat, which is not really an occupation um, unless you're lucky enough to have very good fabrics to work with and potential customers who are willing to let you spend a lot of extra time to make the pattern especially interesting. And of course, at least if you can do it in groups, it's a gossip session as well as an information session as well as a job because, you know, it does not require the full mental hours of um, the East African Plains Ape supercomputer in order to do it once you've had some practice. So there are lots of jobs like that. And especially once you get into agricultural monoculture, there's an awful lot of plowing to be done, weeding to be done, hoeing to be done, and not things in which you can treat each plant lovingly like its own special <laughs> snowflake because you know, got to grow a lot of plants in order to get your 2,000 calories plus a day. So I would say that the idea of moving from jobs to occupations requires um, technology, or at least requires technology if we are going to have a world of 10 billion people rather than 100 million people um, on it, in which our natural resources would be so much more abundant we could do other things. 
I, I, I agree. The technology requires the technology to move the jobby job things um, off, um, leaving the rest of us either having occupations or if the occupation we're pursuing is for some reason not something that people want to, not something that people want to properly value, um, having a side gig in order to bring in the money while they spend much of their time doing what they really want to do, you know, which is, say, writing Game of Thrones fanfic or coming up with the best set of Gomorrah costumes for San Diego Comic-Con or any of the other things concerning social display, you know, take, making TikTok videos and so forth, um, that we genuinely like to do and have fun doing um, and would actually like to devote our time and attention well, so David Graeber gives as a counterexample software engineers who make shitty software because their companies know that somebody in the open source world is going to come along and fix it. And in fact, the people who fix it are the same software engineers. They spend their day at their job making software that doesn't really work and their night fixing it as part of the GitHub community. And Graeber suggests again that the that the job part could go away and the occupation part could remain. And then I presume they could spend their their time that they were spending at their job making uh Comic-Con costumes, but they can't right now because they're not allowed to have food and shelter unless they have satisfied their boss's authoritarian requirements, even though their boss's requirements of what work they actually do is 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 useless and they are doing it in their own time this is this you know, is my what example what is there an example yeah i mean he 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 quotes a software engineer who is living this life exactly but it's very it's very anecdotal he does not provide um lot lots of data suggesting that this problem is as widespread as he suggests which doesn't say that it's not a widespread problem it's just that he doesn't prove that it is a widespread problem Mm -hmm. um, you know, I mean, GitHub is an absolutely marvelous thing, you know, and the open source movement is an absolutely marvelous thing. You know, the open source movement and Wikipedia are kind of the two things that, you know, um, prefigure, you know, say the, the possibility of having occupations and indeed the economies organized as, you know, fiduciary and not mercenary um, institutions. I mean, this is something that goes back to Michael Polanyi, right? Who yes. Kind of said, how does science work? Um, well, you know, science works um, because you do interesting stuff that is then judged by the community and you gain status by doing it first. Right? And, you know, it's incredibly cruel in some sense that Peter Higgs won the Nobel Prize for the Higgs boson and is now famous. While a whole bunch of people, a number of whom were working much harder than he was on the same problem, <laughs> um, but who did not happen to write in one particular paper um, that if any of this particular symmetry mag breaking mechanism is what is going on here, 
we would then be able to see it because it would manifest itself in a particle in this particular way. Right? Um, and so that's why it's called the Higgs boson, because it's the manifestation of a particular field-oriented mechanism that people thought might be going on back in 1960, and lo and behold, it looks like it is. Um, but, you know, Higgs was only one of at least six people publishing on this in the same four-month period, um, was not the first to publish, but was the first to have this particular insight. And lo and behold, now he is famous, and his name will echo down from all time, and his five fellows, and all of the people working alongside them who were almost on the same thing are not. And yet, this is an extremely effective mechanism for pushing science forward. You know, maybe I will get this respect of my peers, I will get this status, I will get this kind of fame as well for doing my job well, even though he actually wasn't doing his job any better than any of the other. Um, it's cruel, it's effective, you know, it's a way of doing things. Lots of tournaments and prizes kind of work the same way, and they do indeed multiply human effort for directing common purposes in a way that isn't really a job, um, and that is an alternative mode of social and economic organization than this, you know, I need to, I need to have a job in order to survive. And in addition to science, to Wikipedia, to GitHub, in fact, to King Arthur's Round Table, where everyone has to write out and do something good and effective and just over the course of the year and then come back and report at Christmas time. And the guy with the best story gets the prize. Um, these are ways that we could be organizing at least large chunks of the world, and yet we're organizing relatively small chunks of the world in this particular and all I'm asking is that we acknowledge that we could organize more chunks of the world that way mm -hmm. and and move that way. Um, but the, the the greatest movement in in history that I know of towards that way of being was the various bills that were passed by Congress under the Biden administration, especially yeah. the child yeah. credit. Yeah. And now we are yeah. told by your colleagues that we cannot have that. And not only must we all go back to work, many of us must lose our jobs. Jason Furman and Larry Summers are currently arguing about how many quarters of Americans losing their jobs do we need to have before we can have you know, less inflation, which since money is a made up thing, it, there must be a way to deal with money as well, opposed to- There is a way to deal with it, yeah. Well, there must be a way to deal with it. But our current experts on the left, Brad, on the left, besides the MMT people who I'm not fully convinced by their numbers, frankly, are telling us that, I mean, I certainly agree with MMT in the broad strokes, which is since money is a made up thing, we can figure out a way to feed the people who are doing the work that we need, as yeah. opposed to saying, yeah. well, yeah. I'm I'm sorry, but become, Goldman Sachs says that most of many Americans have to lose their jobs. And I'm 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 upset by this personally. I mean, not personally because I don't know these men, but I get I get very angry, 
and uh, snap at everyone in my life whenever I read one of these pronouncements that people have to lose their jobs because, I don't know, quote, the economy. Now, at the moment, you know, we have two and a half vacancies for every two and a half jobs searching for a person. And then we have unemployed people searching for jobs you know, right now. And you know, that means that in lots of places, right, people weren't able to get or bosses weren't able to get workers to do stuff. And further down, you know, the supply chain wasn't able to produce stuff to get there. Right now, I have a car that's supposed to be fixed. And it's not being fixed because 10% of the parts needed for the fixing. And, you know, Joe Phillips is very apologetic. And I'm saying, I know I understand, I understand. But still, a bunch of things aren't being done. So his people are off doing on other things, working on cars that came in after mine did, but where they have been able to get the know, And that's okay um, because it's not absolutely crucial to um, and this is a situation in which a lot of people are incredibly angry that consumer prices now are 8% higher on average than they were last year, which means that everyone out there buying things has looked at their money and thought, I need this much money to do this. And lo and behold, now they find today everything's 8% higher. And so they have to be only able to buy 8% less. They're surprised by the fact the prices weren't what they were expecting. And they're angry and they very much want this to stop. Right? Um, and I'm on the side of whimpering that, well, you know, we don't want this um, you know, to stop right now because it's part of the process of figuring out how we need to rework our economy so that it opens up at a full with full employment and with people in the right jobs after the plague, as the plague ends. Um, but there are other people, chief among them Larry and Jason, saying, no, we're getting into very big trouble. And the very big trouble is that people are about to start expecting prices to go up 80% every year. And once they do that, you know, well, it basically requires a huge shift in the labor market so that jobs become so scarce that nobody dares ask for a raise in order to eliminate this then stay at steady 8% per year stagflation. And we definitely do not want to have to have a big recession. So, you know, let's have a small recession now and to make people not terrified, but just a little more worried about asking for a raise and hope that that way we can get back to price stability. Um, because Larry and Jason say we know what happens if we just try to pull our way through and maintain full employment as an inflationary spiral starts. Uh, what happens is that Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher show up and say clearly the Social Democrats do not understand how to manage the modern economy, how labor isn't working, how inflation is the cruelest tax, and you need to elect me. Um, and I will then take care of inflation once and for all. So, you know, Larry and Jason really do not view themselves as the bad guys here. Oh, well, uh, Larry that? and Jason view themselves as being, telling us we need to get off now. 
because if we don't get up now, we're going to go over a cliff. Um, and the cliff is 1982, yeah. with you know Ronald Reagan kind of deciding he's going to ignore what Congress says about the limits of federal power, um, hiring Argentinian mercenaries and sending them to Central America. Um, Paul Volcker, 11% unemployment, Mexican state bankruptcy, and so on and so forth. You know. And, you know, they may be right. Um, I think if they're right, they're right because of the key role that oil and gasoline prices play in America's psyches as to what they expect for prices, and because of Vladimir Putin's invasion in Ukraine and what it has done both to the world oil market and the world grain market, and we now have the prospect of large-scale famine in Egypt and Niger, not famine, but large-scale starvation in Egypt and Nigeria, um, because the Russian and Ukrainian grain that is supposed to flow ain't, and the other countries in the world haven't yet started releasing their grain reserves. So I I have a lot to say in response to that. Um, Good, go well, ahead. but what, well, I mean, we're, we're I don't want to talk for too much longer because we're running low on time, and I'll, I'll just have to invite you back on the show. I guess I would say that would be excellent. Um, I, I I knew that story from Summers and Furman because I've been reading it, and also you put it very well in your book. I'm very glad the listeners got to understand the sense in which Summers and Furman are are center left economists and what they are afraid of. Mm -hmm. I would take mm -hmm. us back to our conversation. You, you know, you pointed out that 9% of our economy goes to the financial sector. I would right. up that number enormously in terms of, let's say, financial sector enabled bureaucrats, lawyers, mm -hmm. accountants, etc. And it is, right. to me, it's a really bad look. If, if people need to lose their jobs, it's fascinating that it's never anyone who is making six figures who needs to lose their jobs, let alone seven figures or eight figures, to solve this problem. And it seems to me that that is, that is where someone could start. If they said people need to lose jobs to fix inflation, it's the people who are buying yachts and caviar who could lose their jobs first, and then we could see what happens. Or is there a, a macroeconomic reason? I, I think it's a pure matter of power that they have the power to keep their jobs. But is there a macroeconomic reason why cutting off uh, inflation at the top rather than at the bottom with things like the child tax credit is a mistake? Well, the child tax credit was simply weird, right? It was simply weird that no, I really don't know why Mansion and Cinema would not vote for an extension of the child. But the rest of the Democratic senators were on board, and I think Nancy Pelosi has enough of the House caucus in hand um, for it to do so. And it's not especially a terribly liberal thing. Um, that feeding starving children? Lots and lots of other countries have child tax credits. I think Hungary, which is 
more than fascist adjacent as a child. Right? The idea is that mothers and fathers residents are doing very valuable social work in raising the next generation. And that this is something that ought to be rewarded financially by any government that has its head screwed on straight and understands who is really doing the work um, for the country. And so who should get some social power in the form of money as a result? It would have been very hard to get America to go there, um, especially since the 1980s and since Ronald Reagan began running against the welfare queens and everyone else began talking about how, you know, poor black women have children so they can live off the dole. And God knows children are a wonderful and an absolutely wonderful thing, but you know, to have another child so you could collect next child's worth of AFDC payments. Um, it simply was never worth it because looking after a child is an incredibly time-consuming um, and attention-absorbing business. Yeah, Unless you want and love more children, that's, that's the kind of life you see for yourself. It's not something you would want to spend. And yet that's where we are. Right, that the assembled mothers and caregivers of America are people who ought to be doing it for free. And to the extent that you want to have a child tax credit, you're giving wealth and social power to the undeserving. And that's a feeling that's strong enough in enough American voters. Um, yeah, no, but... And Mitt Romney occasionally makes Mormon natalist noises about how there's some kind of child tax credit he might support. But that's about the only person on the Republican side who even thinks about it these days. No one else. But are there any macroeconomists who do not like identify as MMT who would admit that we could do i mean perhaps some of them would say if it's if it's quote paid for which is a, i don't want to get into the ter what the term paid for means with respect to congress because it doesn't mean what what an Amer what an average american would think it mm. means in terms of paid for it has to do with quote scoring and that's just we, we don't need to go into that and i want to wrap this interview up fairly soon um there are a bunch of macroeconomists who would say yeah sure we ought to have a much a bit bigger and actually effective child tax credit, and we certainly should pay for it by taxing the rich. Um, problem is we have fewer than 50 senators who actually want to tax the rich. Um, God knows, cinema's bill she was going to die on was the extension <laughs> of any carried interest um, kind of tax provision. Um, yeah. Um, so, sure. And I mean, I think this has got to be Krugman, Krugman's position, more or less. Um, yeah. But it is that the, that the federal deficit is and the level of interest rates, you know, alongside the distribution of income and then income, that those are the important determinants of how much spending there is on the economy. Yeah. And just as we don't want there to be less spending than the economy's productive potential in terms of its actual ability to get itself organized to make things at currently expected prices and have a depression, um, we also don't want there to be more spending. Um, 
and then we have large supply chain problems emerging and lots of large bottlenecks. Um, and then we got inflation. And to some degree, we want to have the inflation, right? Um, that to the extent that inflation is a sign that the economy is rejiggering itself in a way that's more profitable and in a sense way that is more socially productive, it's a good thing to have. You know, you won't, um, you won't get people to move to places where society's demand is stronger um, by cutting wages in shrinking sectors. People just stick and get angry. The only way to do it is by raising wages and expanding sectors. And, you know, if some wages are stable and others are going up, then you have inflation on it. But to the extent that the inflation is something that we do not want to see, you know, it's got to be managed. And one way to manage it is to have the federal government running a smaller deficit. I'm gonna I'm gonna leave our discussion of macroeconomics there. Okay. I, I mean, I've got more I've got more thoughts, and I'm really enjoying this. It seems like I mean, I told you at the beginning, perhaps oh, yeah, entire. We can talk about macroeconomics. We can talk about the pre-1870 world. We can talk about Leon Friedrich von Hayek and Karl Polanyi. Um, we can talk about the the big flaws in my book. Uh, I've got one more. I've got one more flaw for you in your book. Are you ready? Okay. Good. Yeah. The pre-World War I pattern could not be restored completely, of course. Emperors were gone, much had been broken, and many were dead. But couldn't humanity in some sense wind back the clock four and a half years, adjust things, and fix the flaws so that the demons of militarism, imperialism, anarchism, and nationalism would not push the world forward into a similar okay. immediate and dire catastrophe and resume yeah. its march or slouch okay. toward utopia. So uh, for again, for the listeners of this podcast, militarism, imperialism, anarchism, and nationalism. Yes. Uh, I would suggest that one of those things is not like the other. Like the other, yes. Um, you know, unfortunately, uh, um, Piotr Kropotkin has had it's gotten a very bad and unfair press. <laughs> um, personally, I blame Bakunin. Um, and you know, I also got to blame Solgaz and a bunch of other people who were at most anarchist adjacent. Yeah, we, no one knows what Solgaz was thinking. The, like, literally no one has any idea if he was no even an anarchist. No one has any idea, but it was definitely an anarchist. Um, he was definitely an anarchist. Everyone agreed. <laughs> um, no one knows what the motives were of the people who actually threw the bomb at the Chicago police officers after they had shot down the striking crowd. Um, but, you know, it was probably not what Yotar Kropotkin would have liked to see. Um, you know, that... Um, I agree anarchism was a badly chosen word, um, but I want something um, they really wanted was something to say political violence, right? political violence aimed at creating fear. Um, so Emma Goldman says you can use nihilism in the future. Nihilism. She, she says okay. say nihilism right. if you want to associate... Okay. 
uh, a movement right. with political violence. That that's what Goldman okay. says. You don't have to. Um, but... I will ask. I will ask if I can change it in the second edition <laughs> and cite Emma Goldman as my uh, as my gift, providing me a warrant to do. Yeah, I can send you the essay if you want, where she she makes the distinction between you know nihilism. She says the political violence that you're thinking of when you use that phrase anarchism rightly yes. belongs to the nihilist movement. Um, mm -hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. And I uh, mm -hmm. one of the things. Oh, also George Orwell was an anarchist, and he shows up multiple times as one of I would say the the good guys in your book, which is for is further yes. evidence. Yes. That, the uh, problem is that I'm seeing off of the Yeats poem to begin with. Yes, what and what a wonderful mere anarchy. <laughs> mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. Yeah. That's not a good thing. Yeah. Yes. Well, that is a that is a wonderful. I should I should make some tagline like loosing anarchy upon the world for this podcast. I had not yes. I had not thought about that. Look, this is a problem. I mean, Percy Bysshe Shelley. Who, yes. who didn't use the word anarchist, but clearly his beliefs were anarchist, he too uses anarchy as yes. as the worst thing. Ye Yates was even a little anarchist adjacent, but nevertheless, yes. anarchy is yes. bad for him. So, um, Brad, this has been an absolute pleasure. I just want to thank you. I mean, I want to thank you for your time. I want to thank you for writing this book, which I found okay. quite illuminating. It, thank you know, you. so you. overlaps with my period and interests. And then... I want to thank you for. How can I put this? I need. I want to put this in a way that's not rude. Although if it is rude, we can just delete it. Um, for not being a caricature of a center-left economist, but in fact being incredibly uh, reflective over time and bringing your your erudition to bear on on these problems in a way that is. D despite our obvious disagreements, which are, you know, again, mm -hmm. seem smaller and smaller the more we talk, um, is is amenable to me. And I assume other other anarchists, when we're not being uh, demonized as responsible for World War One. Right. Uh, yes. Okay. And certainly the assassins of Franz Ferdinand were in no line. <laughs> very much not anarchists. They were Serbian, very strong nationalists. Um, and nihilists, right, in the believer that somehow if they did succeed in blowing things up, Father Russia would come to their rescue. Sorry, I was thanking you, and then and I was sort of went off on a tangent. Yeah. So let me just say thank you again. This was wonderful, and I will, I'll be in touch. Okay, excellent. Okay, be in touch. We'll do this again. All right, sounds great. Right. Thanks, Brad. Thank you very much for inviting me.